All right, well, good morning, church. Happy New Year to you. Hey, listen, if you're new here today, uh, my name is Will Franco, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at High Point Church, and we're so glad that you are here checking us out on this first Sunday of the year. I want to begin by saying hello to you. I also want to say hello to our online viewers who are being streamed in as we speak, and can we take a moment and give a warm welcome to the Collierville campus who's being streamed in right now? Amen. Amen. Listen, if you are new here, I think you've come on a perfect Sunday, not only because it's the first Sunday of the year, but also because uh, on this Sunday, we are starting a brand new three-week series um, entitled Prodigal. Prodigal. And, and, and this is one of those series, I believe, it's going to be one of the most important series that we do in 2020. And the reason why is because it's going to be a series that helps to set the tone and to cast vision and to create the culture that I believe uh, High Point has to be in order for us to reach the people that we have to reach. I feel that this series is going to be one of those series that in three, four years from now, someone's going to ask you, hey, tell me a little bit about your church. And this is the series you're going to have them go listen to. But hey, if you want to know what High Point is about, go back and listen to the Prodigal series and, and you'll know what we want to be, who we want to be. That's how important I believe this series is. And it's the reason why I wanted to start 2020 with it. So here's what we're going to do, just to kind of give you a heads up for those of you who are control freaks and want to know where we're going, I'm going to do this for you, okay? So, so, so here's the plan. The plan is this morning we are going to start with the prodigal son, which many people think the story is ultimately about. But what we're going to discover as we go through this series is that this story, this parable, is not ultimately about the younger son or the older son. It's ultimately about the father. And so this week, we're starting with the younger son. Next week, we are going to look at the elder brother, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the father. Now, the reason why I'm personally excited about that third week is because in that third week, we're going to celebrate communion together, and we're also going to prepare ourselves in light of the, the, the series that we just did. We're going to do this extended time of prayer where we're going to go into the rest of January preparing ourselves for 2020. We're going to pray for 2020 in light of this parable. And so I'm looking forward to that third week, so be sure to be there for that. Um, but like I said, this morning, we are going to be looking at the prodigal, the, the, the younger brother. <clears throat> Sorry, I got a cough here this morning. <clears throat> so we're going to be looking at the prodigal. Now, what I want to do before we jump in, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, is I want to give you a definition for the word prodigal. And the reason why I want to give you a definition for the word prodigal is because what I've noticed is that many people don't know what the word prodigal actually means. And if you were to ask just the everyday person, hey, what does the word prodigal mean? Many of them would think that it means someone who's being rebellious, someone who's, being, who's wandering, someone who is disobeying and sinning because that's what the prodigal son is doing. But actually what we discover when we look at any dictionary is that the word prodigal, what it actually means is this. It means to be spending money and or resources, get this, freely, recklessly, or wastefully. It also means to spend or give until you have nothing left. That is the definition, the actual definition of the word prodigal. The reason why the prodigal son is referred to as the prodigal is because he's a spendthrift and he just wastes his all. He just recklessly gives away all his resources. And so if that's the definition of the word prodigal, then here's what this means. My prayer for us in 2020 and in years to come is that High Point Church would be a prodigal church. 
because by, by the grace of God, we serve a prodigal God. We could be a prodigal church because we serve a prodigal God, and that's why the name of the series is Prodigal. So what I want to do here at the beginning is I want to read the passage, and so if you can please stand for the reading of God's word, we are going to be in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to jump to verse 11. Um, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Luke writes, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Jesus is the him. We're all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's verses 1 and 2. Now, jump to verse 11. It says, and he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. Everyone say two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, everyone say came to himself. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, everybody say a long way off. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, <coughs> sorry, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, and Lord, we know uh, that your word is perfect. And so, Lord, I pray now that even as I preach on this centuries-old story, this centuries-old passage, I am so, so, so thankful for the, the wisdom that, that Jesus had, for the storyteller that he was, that a story this simple that a story this short can have so many profound implications for our lives. Only God can do it. And so, Lord, I pray that in my humanness, in my, in my sinfulness, I wouldn't get in the way of what Jesus is trying to do here this morning. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's my prayer. That's our prayer. And all God's people said, Amen. you may be seated. <coughs> all right. So... This morning, what we're going to do is we are going to look at this passage under two headings, and essentially what we're going to do is we're going to look at two groups of people. In this passage, there are two groups of people that are represented, okay? So here's what we see. The first group of people that I want to talk to this morning are the people who are waiting, the waiters. Then the second group of people that I want to talk to this morning are the people who are wandering, the wanderers. Now, the waiters in this passage are represented by the father who is waiting for his prodigal to come home. 
Those are the people who are waiting. And then the, the wanderers in this passage are represented by the son who has wandered and has left the father's house. So we're going to start by looking at those who are in waiting, and then we're going to conclude by looking at those who are wandering, okay? So in this passage, we actually, if you are here today, and you are someone who has placed your faith in Jesus, and you are waiting for a prodigal, we actually, there's a lot of encouragement in this story. There's a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of instruction in this story. Now, here's the thing. The reality is this. If you're here this morning and you claim Christianity, if you're here this morning and you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, there has to be, listen to me, there has to be a prodigal in your life. So, so, so here's what I mean. If you're sitting here today and you think, well, I don't got to listen to this first point because I don't have a prodigal that I'm praying for. I don't have a prodigal that I'm waiting for. Listen, if you are a Christian here today, and you don't have a prodigal that you're waiting for or praying for, then you're not actually living out your Christianity, okay? Because if we are to make disciples and we are to share our faith, then you should have non-believers in your life who you are praying for. If you don't have that, then don't call yourself a disciple because you're not doing the thing that Jesus says disciples are to do, which is to go out and make more disciples, And here's the thing about prodigals. One of the mistakes that we make is that because in the story, it's a father-son relationship, we assume that that's the only type of prodigals there are. But but the reality is the prodigal in your life could be your son or your daughter, but it can also be a grandson or a granddaughter. It can also be a husband or a wife. It can also be a niece or a nephew. It can also be a sibling or a friend. It can also be a parent or a grandparent. See, the, the reality is is that prodigals come in all shape and sizes. And so if that's true, then every single one of us who claim to be a believer, if you're not praying for someone yet, you should be praying for someone by the time we're done. And if there's no one to pray for, then that means all your friends are Christians. Okay? So so, so I want you to see here, as we look at the waiting, what I want you to see here, and I'm going to just prepare you ahead of time. As we look at the waiting, the people who are waiting here, There is comfort here, because the gospel comforts, but that same gospel confronts, okay? So you're going to be comforted, but you're going to get confronted. I'll let you know ahead of time, okay? So there are two things that we learn from the Father. If we're here today and we are waiting on a prodigal, there are two things that we learn about the Father. We we learn about his attitude, and we learn from his attitude, and we learn from his approach, His attitude and his approach is something that you and I should be learning from, okay? The first thing that I want you to see, the the first lesson that we should be learning from the Father is his attitude. Now, here's the thing. Let me give you some background in this story. For those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the Bible or you're new to this whole Christianity thing, let let me give you some background on the story of the prodigal son. Back in the ancient Near East, if a father had an inheritance to give, and he had two sons, as the story tells us he does, then the oldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the youngest son would get one-third. But here's the thing. Neither son would have access to the inheritance until the father died. And so for the son to go up to the father and say, give me the inheritance, what he is saying is, you're taking too long to die, so let's speed this up. He is essentially saying to his father, I want your resources more than I want a relationship with you. 
Now, according to tradition, to rabbinic tradition, the father had a few options, a few ways that he could have responded. The first way, and I'm not making this up, the first way he could have responded is he could have slapped his son across the face, okay? Which if he was Puerto Rican, he would have done, okay? But <laughs> he wasn't Puerto Rican. So uh, that's the first thing he could have done. The second thing he could have done is he could have disinherited the son. He essentially could have taken the inheritance away because of how shameful and how ridiculous the request was. But the third thing he could have done is he could have completely banished the son from the family altogether. He could have said, you are no longer part of our family. You have to go. What's crazy, though, is that the father does none of those things. What he does instead is he actually starts to, he responds with saying, okay, He responds by saying yes. And and here's what we don't see in the story. In order for the father to give the son his inheritance, he would have to sell one third of his property, right? Because most of the property and most of wealth in those days was wrapped up in livestock and in property. And so in order for him to to give him the assets, he would have to make it, he would have to liquidate it. So he had to go sell stuff, have less property, less livestock in order to give his sinful, rebellious son, what he was asking for. And yet that's exactly what he does. But here's what I would argue. As ridiculous as it seems what he's doing, I would argue that for those here who are waiting, we can actually learn a lot about the father's attitude. Because here's the thing. If we're being honest, when you are waiting for a prodigal, there's a lot of emotions that you navigate, right? Regardless of who that prodigal is, a spouse, a child, a parent, whoever it is that you're waiting for, a friend, There's a lot of emotions that come up. And I would argue that the closer that that prodigal is to you relationally, the more emotions that you feel. And so one of the things that could happen when you have a prodigal is you can feel shame. You can feel guilt. You can feel regret. You you feel like it's your fault that they are the way they are, right? You can also feel hopelessness because with many times prodigals, it's two steps forward and five steps back. They get closer to the house and then they go back to a further distant land. And it's heartbreaking. There's a lot of emotions. It's hard to keep a biblical godly attitude when all these things are taking place. But what we see in the passage, and I just find it so fascinating, the father has such a balanced approach. His attitude is so balanced. And here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, he doesn't minimize what's happening. But on the other hand, he doesn't maximize it. On the one hand, he doesn't belittle it. But on the other hand, he doesn't magnify it. And he has this really almost objective reaction to what's happening. And here's why I would argue he can do this. And I need you to follow with me here. The reason why the father is able to respond objectively and not take it personally is because he knew that what his son was doing wasn't personal. It was sinful. He knew that it wasn't necessarily hate of the father. It was the love of the world. See? And and the other thing is this, and and I don't want you to miss this. Uh, The reason why the father can respond the way he responds is because he wasn't finding his identity in his son. And he wasn't finding his identity in the society around him. How do I know? Because if he was finding his identity in his son or in the society around him, he wouldn't have responded the way he responded. The moment the son made the request, he would have responded with anger and offensive. He would have been offended and defensive. But he doesn't. Why? Because his primary identity didn't come from his son and it didn't come from society. Listen, I would argue that for many of us who are waiting for prodigals, whoever those prodigals are, part of the reason why we make something that's already hard even harder is because we find our identity in those people. And so because they're wayward, we have failed. And because they're doing wrong, then we must have done wrong. 
and we're giving them too much weight. You know, our children, our, 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 our spouses, whoever it is that you're waiting for, they're, they're good things, but they're not, they're good things, but they're not God things. And they should devastate you, but they should never define you. And I would argue that we make it so much harder because of that. Because we are finding our identity. And so here's the thing. So, 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 and I'll talk more about this in a little bit, but, but, but if you have a few kids, right, and one of them is the black sheep and all the other ones are good sheep, you bring up the good sheep all the time when you're talking to your Christian friends. And no one even knows you have another kid. They don't even know. Why? Because you find your identity in that child. And you make something that's already hard that much harder. Now, some of you may be responding and saying, well, I, don't feel, I feel like that's very cruel. I feel like that's a, a really uh, hard thing for you to say because you have no idea how much it hurts to have this prodigal in my life. Well, one of the assumptions you might make is that because the father responds the way he responds, it didn't hurt him. But here's how I know that it did hurt him. Because in the passage, and Jesus is so masterful with how he does it, in the passage, when Jesus is talking about the father, he says something very specific about the word property. The, word, the Greek word property is a very specific word that Jesus uses. When it says that the father divided his property, the Greek word there is the word bios, which is the word we get biology from. It actually means life. And there's so many Greek words that can be used for the word property. And the question is, why does Jesus use the word bios to describe what the father was dividing? Well, the reason why Jesus does this and the reason why you can't just accuse the father of not caring is because when the father split up in his inheritance, he wasn't just splitting up money. He wasn't just splitting up inheritance. He was literally tearing apart his life. It was his life that he was ripping apart. His heart was being torn in two because of the request that his son was making. And so, 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 so it's not that he didn't feel things emotionally. He was devastated, but he wasn't defined by it. That's the balance that you need to see. Okay? Now, here's the thing. I would argue that part of the reason why many of us have such a poor attitude when it comes to the prodigals in our lives is that in the story, you see that the father never judges. You see that the father never feels superior to his son. But I would argue that for many of us, especially if the prodigal is like a sibling or a cousin or a nephew, someone who is in any way competitiveness, you know, comp competition to you, uh, what, what many of us do is there's a part of us that actually feels superior to prodigals. And every Christmas, we come together and we're like, well, what have you been up to this year? You failed everybody else again. And there's a part of you that has a chip on your shoulder because you think you're better than them. But here's what I would argue. The reason why you cannot feel superior to the prodigal in your life, or prodigals, plural, in your life, is because every single one of us is more prodigal than we know. Every single one of us has a prodigal inside of us. And maybe you haven't left physically, maybe you haven't left geographically, but I guarantee you, you might not even have left externally, but internally and spiritually, you leave every single day. You are a prodigal. And every time, here's how I know, and I'm, and I'm not saying just you, I'm saying me, every morning we get up, we actually start, we start the day. It's, just like, it's like our default setting. We start the day as orphans and not adopted children. We, we start the day and behave like we're homeless when we already have a home. And what happens is, and we don't even realize we do this, we go out into the world, we go out into the distant lands, 
No one knows, obviously, that you're doing it because you're good at hiding it. But we go off into these distant lands. And the problem with the voices in the distant lands is that they're very loud. And they're very boisterous. And they make a lot of promises. The problem with the voices in the, in, in the distant lands is that there's always, it's always conditional. The voices are always conditional. It's always, if you perform, we will give you. If you produce, then you will receive. And we know that's how the world works is because here in the story, the moment his, his funds run out, his friends run out. But we, we go out every day without even realizing it. We ignore the voice of the Father, the unconditional, loving voice of the Father, and we go off into the world to find in the distant land what we already have at home. And so before we get judgmental of the, over the prodigals in our lives, we need to understand and we need to realize that we are much more prodigal than many of us would care to admit. Henry Nouwen, who, who, who died uh, a few years ago, he, he, he wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's one of the books that I read in preparation for this series. And in his book, he says that he got to a point where he found himself very judgmental of the prodigals in his life. He got to a point where he found himself looking down on the prodigals in his life. And here's what he says. This is in light of that. Here's what he says. He says, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Why do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persist in looking for it elsewhere? Why do I keep leaving home where I am called a child of God, the beloved of my father? Why? Well, I can tell you why. Because we are more prodigal than what we think. And the thing is, get this, the father doesn't just want you to come home initially. He wants you to come home continually. This message, so if you were sitting here today thinking, man, I wish my prodigal was here. Well, this message isn't just for them. Once you understand that, it starts to change your attitude. But not only do we learn from the father's attitude, we also learn from the father's approach. His approach in this passage is ridiculous. It, it really is. When you understand the, 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 what, what, what's all going on, one of the things that I discovered as I was studying this passage, and you might not even realize this, but the father actually knew what the son was up to the entire time. And you're like, well, how do, how do you know that? Well, because when the son comes back and the elder brother is out in the field and he shows up and he sees the party going on, he's angry and he tells the father, the father goes out to see him and he says, you killed the fattened calf for the, the one that was sleeping around with women? How did he know that? Well, the only way he could have known that is they were keeping tabs on him. They knew what he was up to. It wasn't that big of a community. He couldn't have gone that far. And it seems like the father was wealthy, so who knows who he had keeping tabs on him. But here's why I need you to understand that. Here's why I want to give you that. That's not just like a, a cute, you know, bit of information. Here's why that's important. If the father actually knew what was happening with his son the whole time, he knew about the people, he knew about the places, he knew about the parties, he knew about the pig pen. If he knew about all that, then his approach is that much more ridiculous. He knew what his son was going through. And his approach is still the one that it is. And so let me, let me explain to you what his approach was. There are a few things that the, the, that the father does in this passage, that he does in this story, that, 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 that there are paradoxes, if you will, that he presents for us, that if we're waiting for any prodigal, we need to, there are tensions that we need to manage. So on the one hand, get this, 
The father was incredibly hopeful, but on the other hand, he was brutally honest. Here's what I mean. We know that he was hopeful because it says that he kept looking at the horizon. And he's the first person who sees his son. The only way you see him is if you're looking. Right? So, so clearly he's hopeful. But on the other hand, because he knew what his son was up to the entire time, he was also brutally honest. Now, why is that important? Now, get ready. The comforting is finishing and the confronting is starting. Why is that important? Because people who are waiting for a prodigal, especially if that prodigal is a son or a daughter or a grandchild or a granddaughter, a grandson or a granddaughter, one of the things that we can do is we can not be so honest about the situation. We, we, we're very hopeful, but we're not that honest. And here's the thing that Jesus says, though. Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. Okay? So you, it's the only way you'll know. But, 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 but he doesn't say, get this, he doesn't say you will know a tree by uh, 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 their baptism when they were in third grade. He doesn't say you'll know a tree by the, the confession of faith they did at youth camp in seventh grade. He doesn't say you will know a tree by their church attendance. He says you will know a tree by its fruit. But man, so many parents, it's like you don't want to admit they might not be Christians. And God forbid they don't know Jesus. And you're like, well, you, but, but pastor, you, 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 don't, you don't know my prodigal. He, he came to church every week for years. Well, listen. Sitting in church every week makes you a Christian just as much as sitting in your garage makes you a car. I don't care how many times they attended. Oh, they got baptized. Well, getting in water makes you a Christian just as much as getting in water makes you a fish. That's not how it works. I don't care what they did externally. Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. But, but, but here's what happens. What if, just, what if you're praying, for, you're praying a prayer of sanctification when you should really be praying a prayer of salvation? You're praying for them to be like Jesus when really you should be praying for them to meet Jesus. Nobody wants to, everybody else sees it, but you can't admit it. You know why you can't admit it? I'm going to tell you exactly why you can't admit it. You can't admit they're not a Christian because since you're still finding their identity in them, the previous thing I said, them not being a Christian, you take blame for it. You are taking blame for them not being a Christian. But here's what's so ironic about this, guys. This is what's so paradoxical about this. The same people who take blame for their prodigals being prodigals are the same ones who take credit for their kids that are walking with Jesus. It's the same door. Don't miss that. It's the same door. So, so those, those are the parents that you meet at the party, right, at the, at the, at the small group, at the, at the Sunday school, and, and they're telling you about the good kids, and they're taking credit for those ones. But the shadow side of taking credit for the good ones is that you got to take the blame for the bad ones. It's the same door. You walk through it, you got to deal with both. And that's why it ticks me off 
When parents who, by the grace of God, have children who are walking with Jesus in any way feel superior to parents who don't have kids who are walking with Jesus. Because you didn't do anything to get them saved. It says in the passage that he went from being lost to being found, from being dead to being made alive. Last time I checked, you can't resurrect the dead. So stop taking credit for something that Jesus did. And that's part of the reason why the people with prodigals don't talk about it. Because the ones that don't have prodigals are proud about it. They don't want to be judged. Call them what they are. It'll make things a lot easier. And you'll stop taking blame. If you can't take credit for their salvation, then you can't take blame for their lack of it. So, I don't even remember what point I'm in, man. I just, I got, I got into it. I got into it. <laughs> so the approach, okay? So, so, so we see that on the one hand, he is hopeful, and yet on the other hand, he is brutally honest, right? But then, but then the other thing that we see, this other paradox that he has as far as his approach goes, on the one hand, and I love this, the father, get this, he never compromises, and yet he never condemns. Don't miss that paradox, Okay? Never in the passage do we see him condemning his son. Never in the passage do we, do we see him saying, you're too far, don't come back. No. Never once does he condemn. But at the same time, he never compromises. He never once approves of the behavior that the son is participating in. And one of the things that could happen when you have a prodigal who's been a prodigal long enough is that in your, in, in your desire to bring them back, you start to compromise. You start lowering the standard. And you start accepting their lifestyle because you just want them at the party. You want them at Christmas. doesn't matter why. You just want them there. The problem is when you compromise, you're not winning them back to Jesus. You're winning them back to you. And so what you could do is you could manipulate and you could, you know, you could offer them money and you could, you know, support whatever it is to try to keep them close. But you're not bringing them back to Jesus. You're bringing them back to you. So in other words, the, the father has this balance that on the one hand, he's like, look, I accept you the way you are, son, but I will never approve of what you're doing. You can accept someone and not approve of what they're doing. He, he says, look, look, I love you enough to accept you where you are, but I love you too much to keep you there. Compromise, no compromise, no condemning. And the last thing he does, and this is a, a very important thing that I need you to hear. He, you see the difference between, I don't know if you know this, but there's a difference between a search party and a welcome committee. I don't know if you knew that, but just in case. There's a difference between a search party and a welcome committee. Here, here are two ways, okay, that people can respond to prodigals. One extreme is the people who are like this, arms closed, saying, if you come back, you're going to have to earn it. You've blown it way too many times. You've let me down way too many times. If you come back, you're going to have to earn it. And it's one of those things where you're essentially telling the person, you got to behave and you got to believe before you can belong. Behave and believe, and then I'll let you belong. But you got to earn it. The other extreme are the people over here who have their arms wide open. And not only are their arms wide open, they are chasing the prodigal wherever they go. Whatever distant land they go to, they're right there behind them chasing after them. 
like this spiritual game of tag. Here's the problem with both of those. Neither of them are biblical. And neither of them are the example the father sets. The father's not standing like this, and he's not running like this. The father stands still, and he stays like this. He says, hey, whenever you're ready to come home, I'm ready for you. Here's the thing. If you have the first response, then you're just acting like the older brother. That's what the older brother does, right? If you look at the story, at the painting that uh, um, whatever his name is, the guy that painted it, Mace, uh, uh, he, he, there's this famous painting. He, 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 the brother is essentially standing like this. Man, you ain't coming back into my house. Right? But then over here, right? Oh, real quick. You know why? I just, just maybe, maybe just an, an idea. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Brainstorming. You being like this, elder brother, law, not love, might be the reason why they ran away in the first place. Okay? But then you come over here, and you got the person who's running around. Here's the problem when you do the other extreme, and you're chasing around and trying to keep them. You're, you're running after them everywhere they go. Remember, the father knew exactly what he was up to the whole time. The father never makes an attempt to rescue him. Not once. But a lot of people who are doing this, what they do is the moment they get anywhere near a pig pen, you're there to save them. The moment they get anywhere near a dead end, you're there to put a, a, a sign so they, 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 they merge. See, the, the thing is, though, is that according to this passage, the pig pen is when they realize that the world's empty. It, 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 the, the great thing about dead ends is that you got to turn around. But if you never let them get there, you might be getting in the way of the very thing God's trying to do. God wants them to reap what they sow, and you're trying to keep them from that. That's the balance. Not this and not this running. You stand still and you wait. Come home whenever you're ready to come home. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to accept you. I'm still going to welcome you. I would argue that you and I have to get to a place where we out prodigal the prodigal. Listen, the only way a prodigal is going to come back is not because of your rules. He's not going to be out there like, you know what? I miss my dad's rules, man. The law, man, I, I, need some, I just need some law in my life. No. The only way to reach a prodigal is to out-prodigal the prodigal. And the great thing is, if you have the gospel, your, your resources are, are, are unlimited. There's going to be a famine in the land eventually. There's going to be a pig pen. Friends are going to leave. But your resources are unlimited, and so the only way to, pro- you got to, the only way to reach them is by out-prodigaling the prodigal. So that's for the waiting Now, what I want to do with the rest of my time is I want to talk to the people who are wandering, the people here who are represented by the prodigal son. Now, here's the thing. You, you might be sitting here thinking, man, that wandering, that, and maybe you're sitting here, but it really, most prodigals aren't even going to be here. They're probably listening online, or you're, you're going to send them the sermon later on, right? But, but here's the thing about the, the, the wanderers. The, 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 the thing about wanderers is that you might be offended that I'm using the word wandering. The reason why I'm using that word wandering is not to offend anybody, but it's because it's the language that's used in the text. It's the only way that you can describe it. Because here's the thing. Because you might be sitting here thinking, I don't feel like I'm wandering at all. I feel like I have purpose in my life. I feel like I have direction in my life. I feel like I have everything going right for me. Well, here's the thing. The other day I was driving in my car and I was at a light and there was a Jeep and the Jeep had a a spare tire in the back and it said, the quote said, "Um, not all those who wander are lost. Yeah, that's true. But I would say the opposite is also true. Not all who are lost wander. 
So just because you're not wandering doesn't mean you're not lost. Just because it seems like you have direction doesn't mean you actually have it. You might just haven't gone down on that road far enough. You hadn't hit the dead end. You haven't landed in the pig pen yet. And so that's why I use the word wandering. It's not to offend. It's to represent the text, okay? Now, here's the thing. There are three things that I want the people who are wandering to know. Whether you're here right now, whether you're online, or whether you're going to hear this in two years. There's, there's, there's three things I need the people who are wandering to hear from me. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the son's repentance. The prodigal son repents. Now, here's how I know. Because it says that when he's in the pig pen, it, the, the phrase there in, in, in the English, it says he came to himself. Now, that doesn't really mean much to us in English, but in Greek, the, 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 the word picture is that of repentance. Now, why is that important? I'll tell you what repentance means in a second. But many times, the reason why prodigals consider coming home is not because of repentance. It's almost always because of regret and remorse. The problem with regret and remorse is that they don't really last that long. So you get, you get lit at a party and you're, oh, you're, you're hung over for a couple days and you're like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And then regret goes away. But this isn't regret. This isn't remorse. It says that he repented. And why is that important? Because in light of scripture, here's what repentance means. Repentance means I am walking in this direction. This is the direction of my life. And now I am repenting and I'm turning directions and I'm heading this way now. My mind has changed. My heart has changed. My direction has changed. Repentance is not a short-term thing. It's a lifelong thing. He repents and comes back. And there's proof because his life has changed. The, the, the direction is different now. Okay? But here, here's what I found so fascinating about this text. Even though he repents, he still doesn't get it. Because a lot of people think, oh, he gets it, right? He's, he's, that's how the story usually ends. He, he, he repents and he comes home and everything is great, whatever. But I would argue that he still doesn't get it. And you know how I know he still doesn't get it? Because he repents. That's the right thing he does. But then he goes back, but not looking for redemption. He goes back looking for religion, restitution, repayment. How do I know? Well, because he goes back to the father and he says, hire me as a servant. And what rabbinic tradition says is that if someone did what he did and the father was willing to accept him, you can actually work your way up back to sonship. So really what he was doing wasn't redemption. It wasn't necessarily reconciliation. It was religion. I'm going to earn it now. So, so get this. The prodigal tried his way, and now he was going to try the elder brother approach. He was just going to do what the elder brother had been doing his whole life. I'm going to earn it now. I'm going to work my way back. But here's the thing. And here's how you know he doesn't get it yet. He still has too high of a view of himself and too low of a view of the father. He still has too high of a view of himself because he thinks he can do something about his situation. He thinks he can work for it. When according to the passage, he was dead and he was lost. So if you're dead and lost, I can't resurrect myself. I don't know about you. But the fact that he thought he could shows that he still had too high of a view of himself. And the fact that he thought he had to do it shows that he still had too low of a view of the father. He thought, there's no way my, my dad's just going to accept me with no strings attached. There's no way he's just going to show me grace and love and mercy. So too high of a view of himself and too low of a view of God results of the father results in religion, not redemption. So get this and don't miss this. If you're sitting here today, and the reason why you haven't, or maybe the reason why you left, 
And the reason why you don't want to come back is because you think Christianity is a religion, then you're wrong. It is not. It is not like any other religion. Because when you come back to the Father, the only way you can come back is for redemption and not repayment. If you think, man, if I got to come back to church, I got to get my act together, I got to clean myself up, I got to write this speech. No, 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 you don't. You're not getting it. You're acting like an elder brother, not like a beloved child. Okay? So repentance. The second thing I want you to see, though, as we, as we, as we address here the wonders, I want to talk to you about the reception. See, see the, what people expected, like I said, was for the father, he should have slapped him the first time. He was definitely supposed to slap him the second time. But instead, what he does is he runs up to him, he hugs him, he embraces him, he loves him. He essentially, he readopts him. He gives him a robe, he gives him a ring, and he gives him sandals, and he allows him to come into the house, and they kill a fattened calf. Okay? Now, here's what I need you to see. As you understand this reception, as you understand this unexpected welcome, here's what I need you to hear today if you are wandering. Here's what you need to hear from me. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter where you've been. I need you to know today, and I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but I need you to know today that the Father has never stopped looking for you. He's never stopped waiting for you. He's never stopped loving you. He's never stopped welcoming you. Never. He wants you back. Man, and here's what's beautiful about Christianity. If this is true, if this parable is true, and if the gospel is true, that what it means is when you come back to the Father, uh, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to fix yourself up. You don't have to write a speech. You don't have to check boxes. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to learn the lingo. You can just come home because that's what grace is. You can just come home. Because the, the Christianity is different. Here's why Christianity is different. And I don't want you to miss this. Christianity is different because Christianity shows up and tells you that what saves you is not good works. It's not good deeds. It's not good performance. It's not good attendance. It's not good devotional times. What saves you is good news. Good news is what saves you. And so listen, if you're sitting here today and you're at the end of your rope, God doesn't want you to react with religion because what religion would say is if you're, if you're at the end of the rope, you better stop climbing that rope again. No, no, no. Let go of the freaking rope. Okay? And if the word freaking uh, bothers you, you can uh, email Josh Mays at High Point uh, 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 East Memphis. Uh, let go of the rope. There is no rope. Just go to Jesus. Go to the Father. Come home. That's why Christianity is different. That's why this is good news. Because we can let go of the rope. We can take off the mask. That's why this is great news. And why, why if we forget it, then what happens is we, we lose sight of, of just how beautiful the gospel is. We, we come to Jesus and now we understand. The reason why we can come exactly how we are is because no matter how big your guilt is, his grace is greater. No matter how big your sin is, his salvation is bigger. No matter how bad your past is, his pardon is better. That's why it's different, because you come to him, and we're, we're, like I mentioned during Christmas Eve, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so there's hope when really there should be hopelessness. And there's wholeness when really there should be brokenness. That's what he comes to offer to you and to me. 
Don't miss that. Don't confuse Christianity with something that it's not. If you're going to reject Christianity, reject it for what it actually is, not from what you think it is. The Father wants you back. He wants you back. And one of the things that's so encouraging to me as I look at this story and as I meditate on this passage, one of the things that just really blew my mind is that in the text, it says that, if you look at verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, it says that the tax collectors and the sinners gathered around Jesus. Now, in the Greek, it's in the continuous sense. So it means they continually gathered around Jesus. They were, they were attracted to him. There was something about Jesus that was different from all the religious leaders. But what's crazy is that just like the prodigal in the story, what draws him back to the father is not the badness of his situation, it's the goodness of his father. He starts to think about all the things he had at his father's house. So it's not the badness of the situation as much as it is the goodness of his father. And the same thing that drew him back is the same thing that drew, uh, drew the tax collectors and the sinners again and again and again and again. They, they, they realize, wait, no, I, this, this Jesus can do something for me that, that no other religious leader can do. So what draws them to Jesus is not his law, it's his love. What draws them to Jesus is not his glory, it's his grace. What draws him to Jesus is not his might, it's his mercy. What draws him to Jesus is not his strength, it's his salvation. He attracts prodigals. He's been attracting prodigals since the beginning. And so if you're a prodigal that wants to come home, get in line, because they're all, that's, they've, all, they've been coming home, because he's been attracting them since the beginning. And the other thing that I love about this text is if you look at how it's written, there's a part where the father describes his son's condition. He says he was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. In the Greek, it's in the aorist tense. And the reason why the aorist tense, tense is great is because not only is it in the past tense, but it's a condition that cannot be changed. And so they are alive and they'll never die again. They are found and they will never be lost again. That's what the aorist tense means there in the Greek. So get this. When you come to Jesus, your past that is so devastating and killing you right now, your past will be in the past tense. Like legit past tense. And so your guilt will be removed. And your shame will be expunged. And your sin will be pardoned. And your security will be secured. Here's the thing. Okay, listen to this. Because someone needs to hear this. I don't know who it is, but someone needs to hear this. I didn't say it in the last service, but I'm going to say it in this service. When you come to Jesus... And when you're in Christ, that sin that you cannot forget is the same sin that God refuses to remember. Man, that's good news. You know, I, 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 this week, um, I, I came across this story, uh, Dr. Ed Clowney, who passed away several years ago, uh, uh, he, he told this story in his sermon about this individual, not this individual, this, this, this parable. And you know, we think, a lot of people think that the parable of the prodigal son is only a Christian story. But actually, there's a Buddhist version of the parable of the prodigal son. And it's found in the Lotus Sutra, is the name of the book. And, and in that story, here's what's crazy. There's a son that essentially does what he does to the father. He, he, he leaves his father's house. And he goes out and he squanders everything away, Right? But then he, one day, he's out in another city, not in the city of his, his father, but another city, and he sees a man, a wealthy man, and he tries to approach him, and right before he's about to approach him, he realizes it's his father. 
And so in, in, in shame and in guilt, he tries to run away. The father sees that it's him, and the father calls one of his servants to bring the son back. But here's what the father does, which is way more likely today than what this father does. The father brings him back and keeps it secret. He wants no one to know that his sinning son is back. And what he does is he puts him as his lowest servant and for years makes him work and work and work and work. And at the end of his life, right when the father is dying, he calls all the neighbors in and all the friends in and all the, the, the family in. And right at the end of his life, he says, this is my son. And he says, I am going to give him the inheritance, get this, because he worked for it. That seems way more likely to me than this story. So the question is, what is the difference between that story and this story? What is the difference between that father and this father? You know, you want to know what the difference is? It's grace. Grace. That's the difference. Amazing grace. Amazing love. Amazing mercy. Amazing forgiveness. It's grace. That's the difference. That's why Christianity is not like Buddhism. It's not like Islam. It's not like Judaism. It's grace. That's why it's different. And that changes everything. That changes everything. And the last thing I want you to see before I end is this. It's not just repentance. It's not just reception, but it's redemption. You know, one of the things that really bothers me as I've studied this passage is that many commentators, even good ones, they, they struggle with this parable because there's no sign of atonement. There's no sign of cost. It's like the father just gives it away freely and they, they argue, well, this doesn't really represent the gospel because the gospel requires atonement. But I would argue that they actually don't understand the passage then because there's a ton of cost in this passage. If you look at the passage, it says that the father, in order to bring the son back, he, he gives him a ring. He gives him a robe. He gives him a sandals. You know whose ring and robe that was? It was his. And get this, it was one day going to be the elder brother's ring and robe. So it cost him too. And then in order to bring him back, get this, remember the property had been divided by a third already. In order to bring him back, he was dividing it again. The property that had already been divided was now being divided again. And then it says that the father ran to him and threw his arms around him. And I need you to see the cost here. Don't miss this. The father runs to him, and in doing so, he takes on his dishonor. He takes on his shame. He takes on his sin. He takes on his guilt. And the reason why commentators say that the father runs to him is because he wanted to get there first because people in the town were going to stone him. That's what was supposed to happen when he got back. So the father wanted to get there first, so just in case someone threw a stone, it would hit him and not the son. Come on, church. And then there's a provision. It says that, that a fattened calf is killed. In order for the feast to happen, there had to be a sacrifice. A fattened calf. But as rare as that was, I can tell you about another sacrifice that opens the door to another feast. You see, the, 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 the problem with only looking at the parable is that you forget that this story points us to another story. A greater story. You know, that this prodigal son wasn't the only prodigal son. There was another prodigal son who also left his father by choice. But get this, when he left, he left out of selflessness, not selfishness. And he went to a distant land, way further than the first prodigal. And when he got there, he, he, he didn't go there to participate in sin. He came to pardon sin. He didn't go there to squander his father's wealth. He went to share his father's wealth. 
But what's crazy about this greater prodigal is that when he came to the lowest moment of his life, when he got to his pig pen, when he was naked and exposed, in the lowest moment of his life, he turned to the father, and instead of the father embracing him, the father rejected him. The father treated him the way that the original prodigal decided should have been treated. And the question is why? Well, he did it to him so that he wouldn't have to do it to you. Listen, when, when you understand that Jesus is the greater prodigal son, all of a sudden you realize that at the cross, Jesus became naked so that you might be clothed. At the cross, Jesus became an orphan so that you might become a child. At the cross, Jesus became homeless so that you might find a home. At the cross, Jesus went hungry so that you might be fed. Man, when you understand that, it changes everything. And so if you're sitting here today and you're a prodigal, an external one or an internal one, I'm going to tell you what the father essentially told him. Don't clean yourself. Don't check a box. Don't write a speech. Just come home. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you this morning and we are grateful for your forgiveness, for your salvation, for your grace. Father God, I pray right now for two people, for two groups of people. I pray for those who are waiting. I pray that, that you would encourage them in their waiting, that you would instruct them in their waiting, that you would give them the peace that surpasses all understanding and that you would keep them from finding their identity in their prodigal, but that instead they would give their prodigal back up to you where, where they belong. And I pray that they would understand today that you love their prodigal infinitely more than they do. And you prove that at the cross. But Father God, I also want to pray for the people here today who have not placed their faith in you. For the people here today who have, who have wandered away. Maybe have never come back ever or, or, or were there and then, and then had just been on a journey in a distant land. I even pray for the ones who maybe have left in their hearts but never have left physically. I pray that today would be the day that they come back. I pray that the day would be the day that they let it all go and come back to the Father. And I thank you that in light of the gospel, you are ready to accept them and receive them and embrace them. Listen, if you're here today and that's you, you're, you're, you're praying and waiting for a prodigal or you are the prodigal that needs to come back. I pray that you would come back here, come to the front during this song and receive prayer, receive a prayer over your life. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Today is your day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.